Okay, everybody. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to see you all. Welcome. I am Francesca Clark from the Centre for the Study of Human Rights here at the LSE. On my right is Professor Connor Geerty, and on my left is Dr. Devika Hovell, both from the Law School here at the LSE, and I will give more formal introductions to my panel in a moment. Um, is it not coming out? Am I not being... Can you hear me? Yeah, I think it's better now. I'm still Francesca Clark at the LSE. <laughs> uh, it's my great honour to have been asked to chair the launch of Professor Geerty's most recent book, Liberty and Security, published by Polity Press, price only £15, with lots of books outside and a book signing at the end. I suspect that won't be the only plug for your book tonight, Professor Geerty, do you think? But, you know, why feel shamed by this? This is a book launch. It's perfectly fit and proper to keep plugging the book, and I have read every word, and I can recommend it to you all. Now, why do I say Connor's latest book? Well, we all know that well-worn phrase, don't we? You wait 20 minutes for a bus, and then two come along. Well, in Connor's case, you just finished reading one of his books, and oh my God, another one comes along. <laughs> eight in the last eight years, if my maths is correct? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we all talk things like that. Really? We all say, I can't yeah. remember how many. No, this is... <laughs> so, so let me sketch out the running order for tonight before I do the formal introductions. Connor will introduce his book to us for about 15, 20 minutes. Tavika will then respond for about 10 minutes. Um, I will then make a comment and put a question to Connor from the chair. And then I will open it up to all of you and we will wind up at 8 o'clock from. Now, I have to read every word of this because I don't understand a word. I'm, I'm being honest with you. I'm being open. I'm confessing, right? So I'm going to read this. <clears throat> now, for those of you who use Twitter, the hashtag for this event is LSEGearty. If you have any comments or questions for Connor, please use the hashtag or tweet at LSE Law. This is the thing I don't understand how there's two different hashtags, but don't explain, don't explain. My colleague, thank God, you're going to be so relieved to hear this. My colleague, Amy Williams, who is sitting here in the front, she, not me, is the Twitter guru for this evening. Amy will be tweeting as we go along, that is, if any of us say anything at all interesting, <laughs> worth tweeting, and she will join us on the stage um, when we come to the questions, where she will put some tweeted questions to Connor. Now for the formal introductions. Dr. Devika Hovell is a lecturer in international law in the law department here at the LSE. She's worked as a judge's associate at both the International Court of Justice and the High Court of Australia. I hope, you're all, I hope you're all sufficiently deferential now you've heard that. She obtained her doctorate from the University of Oxford in which she focused on the issue of due process in Security Council sanctioned decision-making, on the basis of which I know she will have plenty to say about Connor's book. Now, Connor is one of those people that everyone like me, chairs always say, oh, he needs no introduction. And that's gone on for so many years now that almost no one knows anything about him anymore. So I thought I'd just tell you one or two things. He was born in Ireland. I won't tell you where, don't worry. 
and graduated in law from University College Dublin before moving to Wilson College, Cambridge in 1980 to study for a master's degree and then for a PhD. He became a fellow of Emmanuel College, Cambridge in 1983 and in 1990 he moved to the School of Law at King's College, London where he first met Francesca Clark. Sorry, <laughs> where he was first a senior lecturer, then a reader and finally from 1995 a professor. He was director of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights from 2002 to 2009 and is now Professor of Human Rights Law in the LSE Law Department. Connor's also a barrister and was a founder member of Matrix Chambers from where he continues to practice in all sorts of interesting cases. But what this formal blurb doesn't say about Connor is that he's the original Renaissance man. That means he can put his hand to almost anything and his book, therefore, ranges across a whole quite a number of disciplines. It's published by <laughs> £15, lots of copies outside, signing at the end. I also feel I want to say that he and I have collaborated and sparred in almost equal measure for over 20 years, and he is one of the funniest, most intellectually challenging, most energetic and inspiring colleagues and friends I have the pleasure to know. Connor. Thank you. <laughs> did, uh, did Francesca Cook just say one of the most intellectually challenged people? <laughs> I, I think she did. I really do. I think... I think she thought I just wouldn't get it, but I'm not <laughs> that intellectually challenged. So, uh, thank you very much, Francesca. I mean, there was a moment there when it spilled into the personal, and I thought that we'd absolutely agreed not to say anything about it from the stage. But just spar, spar, <laughs> just little hint uh, there. On some Wikipedia entry, there was somebody... I, I had two books, but I think I changed that to about eight, so maybe that's the, <laughs> that's the basis for that. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here because I, I run uh, events with Bradley Barlow for LSE Law. And we had this idea about having conversations and engaging in a slightly different way with uh, the events uh, program. And it's involved uh, having people like Jean-Paul Costa last week, the former president of the European Court of Human Rights, and uh, Brenda Hale, Baroness Hale, in a couple of weeks for conversations, so we get to know them and people tweet questions. I am a tweet person, and I do not associate myself with Francesca's Luddite rejection of things tweety. Don't um, get my point when I said we've sparred for over 20 years. And I'm more than grateful to Amy, who manages Francesca's tweet life, <laughs> for acting as the tweet guruette. We normally have a tweet guru in the shape of Bradley. Uh, but we have, because we're committed to gender balance here, we have a tweet gourouette later on. So keep those tweets coming and don't be put off by this kind of reaction from the chair here. Uh, but this is slightly different than uh, the usual because I want to sell a book. So I'm going to talk uh, for about, I think, what about, thank you very much. And I, I, I'm not sure if it is 15 quid outside. I imagine there must be some kind I of deal. I checked, Connor. I Imagine checked. Not. Okay, there what is no deal. What does you take me for? Uh, <laughs> there's 20 quid if I refuse to sign it. Uh, 
So I'm going to speak for about 15 or 20 minutes, and I'm delighted that Devika is going to respond, because I think we have a, we have a difference of view about some of this stuff, so it begins to see if we do. The sparring continues. And uh, what I, I thought up this title for my 15 minutes, and I'm going to speak to that, actually. Uh, I enjoyed doing this book, and I found it, it's quite short, and uh, for the students, there is a very cryptic set of clues to the exams at the end of this academic year. <laughs> uh, so it's quite sort of Da Vinci codish, but it's crackable, and so I would really strongly advise all the students to buy it, because uh, it may, your career may hinge on cracking, on cracking the code, and it's only available to people who've purchased it. There is a complex way in which the book reads the mind and the checkbook of the reader. It's very... I won't go into it now, but Polity have really got state-of-the-art stuff here. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it, and it is an exercise in interdisciplinarity, and it is a work in progress. It's quite short, actually, with print quite large and relatively large index, which means, really, as a colleague of mine in, Oct- in Cambridge said when I gave my talk, he said, but your book, he said, is shorter than one of my chapters, he said. And I took that as a compliment, though it wasn't, I think, intended as a compliment. Uh, his chapter continues, continues, uh, and mine is out. So there is a trade there. Uh, and what I, I want to uh, explore is in these 15 minutes, just sort of run now, I think, Francesca. Yes, I think they the, sort plug, of run the plug has been done now. They, the various things we've done. Is explore a kind of a, a problem. I was talking to my uh, students this afternoon about this in my terrorism class. A problem about the meaning of liberty and the meaning of security. And the problem. Uh, can be neatly summed up, I think, by looking at the second inaugural address by President George Bush on his victory in the elections in 2004. And to locate it, we need to remember that this was a time when uh, the Americans had been involved in various acts of what many thought to be illegal international aggression, but they had also uh, been exposed as the authorities, that is, of course, responsible for horrors, uh, unspeakable horrors in places like Abu Ghraib, and other places, and they ran and oversaw Guantanamo. And uh, you would have thought that in that situation, a president of the United States of America wouldn't get re-elected if people cared about liberty, and that even if he or she did, they wouldn't devote any remarks at all to liberty other than in the most cynical manner. But in fact, the president devoted his uh, inaugural address to liberty and freedom. And he said, for example... Uh, There is a moral choice between oppression, which is always wrong, and freedom, which is eternally right. He said, the survival of liberty in our land increasingly depends on the success of liberty in other lands. And then he talked about the global appeal of liberty. And then, again, another couple of quotes. Eventually, the call of freedom comes to every mind and every soul. Uh, And the last one, liberty will come to those who love it. And I remember thinking at the time how mystifying it is that this should be a credible intervention by the president and and not a completely cynical one because he clearly believes in liberty and more to the point, enough people in America listening to him believed in his version of liberty. And I think that's actually quite important to reflect on. There's a gulf between what I understood liberty to mean and what it seemed... uh, It seemed sensible people believe liberty to be. And then we had exactly the same a couple of years later in the United States, in the United Kingdom, when we had a new Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, and we had a country which had, in a smaller way, been involved in exactly the same kinds of levels of what I thought to be abuses of liberty in Britain. We had had uh, the uh, Belmarsh 
uh, internment, though not called that. We had, uh, when it was removed by the courts, we had the move to control orders, uh, we had participation in the war in Iraq, and yet we had a prime minister who, without any sense of irony, also devoted a lecture to liberty. And in October 2007, talked about what he called uh, the distinctly British interpretation of liberty, one that asserts the importance, this is a quote from Gordon Brown, of freedom from prejudice, of rights to privacy, and of limits to the scope of arbitrary state power. Uh, and uh, later on in the same speech, in a way that then introduces the second of our topics, security, he says that this uh, liberty can be threatened from the outside, uh, terrorism can strike anywhere and anytime, with the very freedoms we have built up over generations being the freedoms terrorists most want to destroy. So what we have here, uh, and the book sort of explores this, is the mismatch between what I understood the terms terror, uh, liberty and security to mean and what President Bush and Mr. Brown thought they meant by the terms. And as I root into the topic in my few minutes, uh, I'll, I'll synopsize the route that I chose to get into this, and the route was through history. And though I'll get to neo-democracy in a moment, big social, political, legal changes don't happen out of the blue. And I am going to present to you what's in the book as a kind of, as, as rival visions of liberty and security, which have worked their way through generations of uh, political, legal culture in various places, though they started in England, and now, in a way, uh, we see them being worked through in the context of 11 September 2001, which has turned us into neo-democrats, on, on which more in a moment. And the two were Thomas Hobbes uh, and uh, the Levellers. Uh, Thomas, Thomas Hobbes, I use mainly Quentin Skinner, uh, and I uh, think about the way in which he sees liberty as the freedom to do anything at all, but it's a freedom that is so dangerous it requires a transfer to the sovereign to the extent that the sovereign is empowered in the name of security to do what the sovereign wills. So you have the paradox that the absolute right to everything leads to uh, subjection to the sovereign. Now, that one thread becomes a very familiar thread through other thinkers in British law and subsequently in American law and generally, which is one which views liberty as residual. And this is quite an important theme in British law, on which more in a moment. And the idea behind it is that we have freedoms, we are naturally free, but we are free only insofar as the state does not take our freedom away. So uh, this, I say, in, in a way that I'm crudely summarizing now, is a consequence of the Hobbesian notion of liberty being something we all have, but which is overridden by the power of the state in the sphere of state necessity. So that's the first model. The second uh, is a more conventional social democratic model, as we would now call it, of liberty, which you see with the levelers, who were a revolutionary organization in the 1640s and who counterposed this vision of liberty with a different one. And their idea of liberty was li living in a free state. And they talked about a system of representative, responsible, accountable, and democratic government. And they also demanded, quote, that laws ought to be equal, so they must be good, and not evidently destructive to the safety and well-being of the people. Now, the 
Lebanon, a version of freedom would be more, I think we think of it today as a kind of Republican version, where they saw freedom as living within a free society, a free state. And they saw security, their term there, of the good life, as something which was about uh, having the capacity to lead a free life, a flourishing life. Now, uh, the first version, the Hobbesian version of liberty, obviously prioritized state power where it was required. But the Republican version of liberty also prioritized state power where the state was threatened. And so this version of liberty talked about a free society, but it didn't talk a lot about individual freedom within the free society where the individual challenged the freedom of the state. And so you have less of an emphasis on the individual and more of an emphasis on the need to protect the community. So the result, running through you know, themes that are worked through much more in the book and which we can talk about a bit more in the question and answer if we have this, is that in both accounts, which are kind of predominant accounts of liberty and security, liberty is quite tenuous for the individual. Liberty is somewhat partial. It is uh, subject to intervention by the state under either model, Leviathan or the Republican model. And security is seen not in individual terms, uh, but in societal or national terms. Now, the upshot of this is that even though quite a lot of the leveler advances were achieved, the plight of the individual who challenged state power was always quite insecure. Liberty was qualified and tenuous for those who challenged the state. Liberty was not experienced as tenuous and fragile for those who did not. So I'm introducing uh, an, a piece of historical context, which is that really for people who were comfortable with the status quo, freedom was experienced and real, and security was their priority. For those who sought to change the status quo, I'm talking mainly about Britain, but America and other places as well, for those who changed, wanted to change the status quo, liberty was extremely fragile, under either model. Uh, so you have, and there's sort of evidence in the book, uh, you have Mr. Justice Darling in a case in the First World War saying, uh, using the maxim, salus populi suprema lex, the safety of the people is the greatest law. I talk about other cases, for example, in the 1920s, where a uh, Home Secretary defended a prosecution of the Communist Party members for sedition by saying they'd been engaged in the wrong kind of speech. So there is quite a sense in which, looking at the record in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, and notwithstanding the expansion of the democratic franchise, it continues in both Britain and the United States, and I suspect elsewhere, of a belief in freedom, uh, a, a, which is ostensible and internalized, which is uh, occurring at the same time as a rejection of the right of outriders in the culture to that very same freedom. So you have, uh, therefore, two kinds of people. You have people who are outside, who do not experience the freedom, and in a way do not expect to experience it. And you have people on the inside who are able to engage in their freedom and who expect to be able to engage in it and who are shocked 
when it doesn't happen. Uh, the very good example of this is, say, the 1930s in the United Kingdom, where uh, the British National Party, as it now is, but the Mosleyite fascists as it was, were able to exercise their freedom of speech and freedom of assembly right through onto the 1936 Public Order Act, while the communist equivalents were being cracked down on by the police. And you had an exact match of that recently with the real solicitude for the English Defence League and its commitment to uh, various kinds of protests being defended by, among others, Eric Pickles as part of the British tradition of liberty, whereas Muslim critics of the war, Muslim disruptors of remembrance uh, e events were being cracked down. And you see it too uh, very much with the way in which people who find themselves caught up today in laws which they think were designed for other people are shocked at the possibility that the laws impact on them. An outstanding example would be Gary McKinnon, for example, or the bankers who faced extradition to the United States uh, for alleged uh, crimes, or the chap from the south of England who faced extradition to America because of alleged uh, export irregularities in the transfer of weapons-type stuff to Iraq. These are people who belong to, as it were, the mainstream, who experience liberty and security, and who are shocked that the laws can apply to them, and who call in aid the Human Rights Act, and who call in aid these various uh, commitments to freedom and liberty in order to protect themselves. Uh, in one extreme case, Theresa May, the Home Secretary, you remember, uh, overriding the court's judgment that there was no human rights issues involved to stop sending uh, Gary McKinnon back to the United States of America on grounds of her judgment about the importance of protecting his rights. Now, I have no particular view on that case, but I'm making a point which leads me into the sort of neo-democratic point, which is that we have constructed liberty and security in a way which means that for the majority of people, we experience liberty as real, but that there are always, and have always been, outriders for whom liberty has been a very fragile uh, 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 thing, hardly an entitlement at all. Usually people who've challenged society, who want to change society radically. And you contrast those various cases, the NatWest 3, the, the banker, the uh, case of Gary McKinnon, with, say, a case which arose almost at the same time as uh, Gary McKinnon, which is Babar Ahmad, who was extradited to the United States to a maximum security prison. The European Court of Human Rights had, in my opinion, uh, uh, very ill-advisedly found that the conditions in such a prison did not amount to a breach of Article 3 of the Convention and that there was therefore no issue in human rights, exactly the same as Gary McKinnon, and it never occurred to Theresa May, the Home Secretary, to invoke some super protection of human rights to send, not to send him back. Uh, you see it with the current debate about the deportation of criminals which the same Home Secretary is suggesting should actually be achieved by direct primary legislation, overriding human rights. Uh, you see it in the extraordinary proposals at the moment for secret justice in this country, which are to be, again, brought before the House of Lords quite soon. You see it with, in the United States of America, Guantanamo, uh, here, control orders and now terrorism prevention investigation measures. You see it in America with the actual now, sort of broadly accepted, killing of American citizens. It's openly defended 
by the state. What do all of these examples of quite harsh action towards people within the jurisdiction uh, have in common? They all have in common that the people involved are not the Gary McKinnons, they're not the NatWest bankers, they are people whom we think of as outsiders. They are people who are not part of the core mainstream that experience liberty as a freedom to do what they will, that are beneficiaries of the residual approach to liberty. Uh, the American citizens that are killed, well, if they have names like Anwar al-Awadki, it is likely that it's not going to excite American society in quite the way that American citizens with different kinds of names would excite them. It's not... Uh, it's also the case with, for example, the terrorism prevention investigation measures, the control orders. They affect certain British citizens. So even though they are potentially universal, we do not experience them as universal. We do not see that there is any real threat that these deprivations of liberty will affect us in probably much the same way that people in the 19th century who had no interest in Irish nationalism did not think that their meetings would be broken up or who had no interest in female suffrage, did not think that their meetings would be broken up, or people in the 20th century who were not communist and did not think that their meetings would be broken up. In exactly the same way, we experience the liberty without seeing that around us the liberty is not available to others or is delivered in a much more insecure way. Now, this takes me to really the, the point here about neo-democrats because the book then makes as its core argument, a number of points about what is happening to democratic society. And I want to sort of slightly here, but not in the book, because I, don't, I can't stand it up. I, I want to suggest that something quite important began to happen after 1989. And uh, it's, I intuit or guess, it's to do with the uh, collapse of socialist alternatives to capitalism, it's to do, therefore, with the disregard of social democracy by capital. It's lack of fear anymore about the implications of capitalism in terms of losing power through exciting stronger revolution. And 1989 is not just about the rise of capital, which you know, we could summarize as neoliberalism, privatization, uh, uh, commitment to greater inequality, movement of resources from the poor, which resources were conceded under threat of communism through the social democratic concessions. It's not only 1989 about that. 1989 becomes also, in a way which uh, ought to concern us, it becomes the era of human rights. So you have the constitutions and the rule of law and the commitment to human rights in the nation states that have emerged from the Soviet Union and elsewhere. So you have this paradox of a great explosion of democratic countries committed to the rule of law and human rights at exactly the same time that there is uh, relatively great increases of inequality across both old democratic countries and new ones. And this is where this idea about a neo-democratic state comes from. A neo-democratic state is one which maintains, in my opinion, it maintains the camouflage of a democratic state with the accoutrements of democracy, the rule of law, uh, international invigilation for human rights, visits from the international commissioners on this or that, uh, a constitution of court and so on, while at the same time ensuring that this 
does not bite so far as any kind of radical change is concerned. Um, this is true of the United States and the United Kingdom in the way that I suggested. They are coming towards this neo-democratic position and secret justice, preventive detention, Guantanamo now organized as it is under Mr. Obama in a coherent sort of legalistic way. These are all parts of rethinking of democracy to ensure that traditional commitment to due process, the rule of law, and so on, seem outmoded and out of date. And we see it happening, and there are lots of examples in the book of uh, new democracies doing it as well, uh, countries which are embracing the language of the rule of law and human rights and democracy without actually delivering very much in terms of tangible change within these states. Now, the trick is to embrace all the language of human rights, to join the European Convention on Human Rights, to have the Commissioner for Human Rights to come. And when you go through all these papers, I think these are fantastic organizations and they do brilliant work. There's no doubt about it. But you see often the visitor, say, to a place like Russia or Turkey, the visitor is grateful to have met people and that becomes almost like the achievement to have met people, to have been taken seriously. And if we're not careful, I think we might all collude in this kind of camouflaged democracy. The point of the start, I'm winding down, the point of the start of my talk is that this is something for which most people in this society are not affected by it adversely. So it's, it's, it allows the society to tick over so that elections are actually won by people like the current Prime Minister of Turkey or the Prime Minister of Russia. And there is, there of course, you know, there, the uh, campaigns are uh, distorted by uh, intervention and so on. But these people are not entirely at odds with their own culture because liberty is being experienced by enough people who don't want to rock the boat, who are doing well out of the system, who are not questioning it, to be something which has a plausibility. While journalists are being shot, or while trade unionists are being imprisoned, or while separatists are being bombed. Or, in one famous case, of course, one country invading another country within the Council of Europe. I do say what to do about it, and we might leave that for questions. I think we, 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 we have threads to universalism which have been extremely important in, re in resisting the, thread, the trend towards new democracy. I used to be quite critical about courts, but I am not anymore, really, because the idea of the rule of law is one that has stood out against a lot of these changes and has attempted to impose the universalism that is claimed by politics on everybody. So the law is not as good at doing hypocrisy as politicians. So you have cases like Cardi, you have the late Nada, better late than never, in the European Court of Human Rights, and you have cases like Boumediene in the United States. So law is one. Law has got a commitment to universality, which is important. And um, my old friend Human Rights has a very important role here because human rights does universality. And it makes it very difficult for the authorities to resist the data generated by good human rights work, which is about plummeting levels of inequality. That's why it's very important to stick to the idea of democracy, or sorry, to stick to the idea of human rights as rooted in conventions, to have rapporteurs, to have data, to have measurements, rather than to have some kind of cultural idea of human rights, which allows, of course, some countries to claim custodianship of human rights while rejecting all visits from UN 
human rights rapporteurs, or while not in one case, even participating in the universal periodic review. But at the end, I think we do need to think through what we mean by security. This is a poorly argued piece in the book. It's barely hinted at. And I think the answer lies in trying to work out a new idea about security, one which is not just about national and societal security, but one which is about security for people to be able to lead successful lives. Because I think one of the sadder consequences of the apparent current victory of neoliberalism is that people's lousy lives are causing quite an increase in the uh, anger that is then exposed towards other people, minorities among them. And until we think through in a robust, I would say, social democratic way, uh, the idea of security as an opportunity to lead good lives and not just a protection from internal or external attack, I think we're asking the rule of law and human rights to do a very great deal. Uh, that's me, the book summarised. Apart from the amazing exam answers that are scattered through it, it may be thought now unnecessary to buy it. I will just say, please do anyway. Thank you very much. Fantastic stuff. Connor. Thank you. Uh, that's what you get with Connor's books, in my experience. All eight of them that I mentioned before, you get an argument. You know, you get plenty of law, but you don't get a dry legal textbook. You get law the fun way. Uh, and uh, you'd never disappoint, Connor. Thank you very much. Now, I'm delighted, though, to introduce again Dr. Hovell, and I can't wait to hear how she's going to find areas of disagreement with Connor. Good heavens. Connor um, writes the way he speaks. It's sort of like celebratory machine gun fire. <laughs> and you've made it really difficult because he hasn't even touched upon what's actually in his book. It's just sort of like the chapter... It's sort of like one of those movies where in the end they, they set something up and you know there's going to be a sequel. So I think he's setting up book number nine, which makes it a bit difficult because... What I wanted to address is, is the stuff he hasn't actually disclosed to you, and I know you're probably speed readers, but there's no ETs among us, and you're not going to have read the book before I get to speak. So, when the smoke clears from this machine gun fire, I'm going to start with sort of some of the images that were left in my mind, and then I'm going to try and narrow my discussion, spear-like, to a sharp point that's going to be quite shocking in its abrasiveness. Um, and we'll leave it at that. Um, essentially, of course, liberty and security depicts a tension that's central to this era of globalisation we're living in. So it kind of sets up very nicely this tension between liberty and security, this tension between increasingly liberalised borders and border fortification, a tension between fusion of cultures, trade and technology, and partition. So he speaks about different laws for migrants, um, for refugees, for migrant workers in particular, um, even the kettling of protesters at the G20 protest in London in 2009, um, that partition wrought through that. Attention between transparency and secrecy, and, and essentially this tension between opening of liberty and barricading of security. And so it's no accident that on the front cover of this book, you might not have seen yet, but 
liberty and security, um, it's no accident that the imagery of walls is used. So we have a wall on the front cover, he brings through walls. And the idea is that the tension nests in these walls that, that have paradoxically sprung up to ensure security in the wake of a newfound liberty that was celebrated with the crumbling Bastille of Cold War Europe. Um, and, and Connor certainly refers to, of course, that US-Mexico border fence, the Israeli security fence, um, Northern Ireland peace lines, the walls within walls that we're living in, the gated communities in South Africa, Israel, Holland Park, um, <laughs> the checkpointed passageways that we all sort of live our day-to-day -day life in these days when we go into museums, airports, the password-protected iPhones we all use. And the message that Connor has to us all, us neoliberals, cosmopolitanists, neo-democrats, Connor exposes that paradox in the fact that while we may all dream of a world without borders, we also possess a passion for world-building. And he says that ultimately we're all engaged in a giant act of collective self-deception. So he highlights a certain Wizard of Oz quality to these walls that we're erecting around us, that the very image that these walls are intended to project of a bounded, secure nation in a global landscape is at the same time undone by the very presence of those walls. The measures that we're enacting to protect ourselves are in fact destroying <coughs> the fundamental universal goals of the society we're seeking to protect. So these walls don't only protect, but they're actually inventing the society within which we live. And this is where he, he develops this idea of neo-democracies. Um, so neo-democracies he defines as this modern tendency to see liberty as in reality a selective rather than a universal entitlement. So a lot of what Connor says I agree with. It's very interesting, it's very valuable, it sets up an exhaustive, rather than exhausting detail, um, the counter-terrorist policies across the globe and its broader and less visible but more dangerous impact that it's having on the fabric of this, our societies. Um, but it's a bit boring to disagree, to agree with Connor, <laughs> essentially because it's so fun to argue with him. So I'm going to try to provoke him into a defence of his thesis. So this is where it's difficult because he hasn't set up for me in wing commander style, wingman style, what I wanted to address, the argument. So I'm going to have to make it dash of it. So I'm interested in the strand of his thesis that draws a connection and indeed a causal link between Security Council policy, a new word, he hasn't even mentioned it, there's a whole chapter and it filters through like a thread through his whole book, between Security Council policy and a resolution such as 1373 and 1267. In a nutshell, these are setting up this counter-terrorist regime that is supposed to be like web-like spread out across the globe, sets up these Security Council blacklists of sanctioned individuals who have their assets frozen around the globe, um, who have travel bans imposed on them, um, who can't be employed um, and can't um, be educated, etc. Um, so he sets up this causal link between those Security Council resolutions and the normalisation of a cultural division, or he calls it a cultural war, at the domestic level. Um, and he has, again, a whole chapter on pseudo-democracies like Belarus and Kazakhstan. And, and he shows how basically Security Council is, is sort of an, uh, providing a cloak for their um, terribly authoritarian counter-terrorist policies. 
Um, and then he draws the link Security Council to Belarus that that's normalised that sort of authoritarian regime without rights in neo-democracies such as the one we have in front of us in Britain and also in the US. So for international lawyers such as myself, who are more often called upon to explain the stasis of the Security Council, the impotence of the Security Council, in the face of things like the Rwandan genocide, Srebrenica, more recently Syria, it's actually quite refreshing to sit and read ruminations about a hyperactive Security Council <laughs> that threatens to turn all our governments into Belarus or Kazakhstan through bad drafting. But this forces me into the somewhat un unnatural position of defending the Council. So don't get me wrong, I don't shy away from the implications of cases like Cardian. I'm sorry to push case names on you that haven't been mentioned by the my, almighty author. Um, but Cardi, that, that basically where the European Court of Justice overturned, invalidated this sanctions regime on the basis it didn't give due process. Um, but what I take issue with is Connor's conclusion that the right thing to do from the perspective of democracy, and I'm quoting from Liberty and Security, a book available now. In <laughs> um, I take issue with Connor's conclusion that the right thing to do from the perspective of democracy, human rights and the rule of law, true liberty for all, would be to abolish the whole system. So I have a problem because a return to stasis on the part of the Security Council is perhaps one way to prevent us all becoming Belarusian or Kazakhs. But in all seriousness, I don't think this is the problem we need to address. And to my mind, the depiction of a link between the Council, Tales of Injustice from Belarus and UK counter-terrorist policy engineers an imaginary threat. So Belarus will be Belarus, Kazakhstan will be Kazakhstan, Russia will be Russia, Security Council resolutions or not. The problem that we're dealing with can be set up quite simply, and that's the adversity between liberty and security in the area of counter-terrorism and how we deal with it. Now, this is good work for lawyers. So counter-terrorism policy, as Connor has set out in his talk and sets out thoroughly in his book, counter-terrorism is a policy pursued not outside the law, but cloaked in the law. And we have the example of the war against terror. Now, that use of the term war wasn't a mere rhetorical flourish on the part of the Bush administration. It had real legal implications. And as provide a cloak or a camouflage in Connor's terms for things such as Guantanamo Bay. We, we know even with our rudimentary knowledge of the law of armed conflict that in the case of war, it's legitimate to detain individuals indefinitely. That is for the duration of the war. But the problem with a war against a noun is that such a war is of indefinite duration. There is no end, and that leads to this, this legally um, indefinite detention of individuals in Guantanamo Bay. More relevantly, perhaps, in contemporary society, these drone strikes, of course, and there's been the leak recently of the memo, justified on the basis that it's lawful in a war to target combatants and kill them. And so drone strikes are justified under the language, within the language of this war against terror. So, now, how am I going? We've got about a minute left. A minute left, okay, here I go. So, Koskinyemi, another fella, pretty eminent professor, Marty Koskinyemi, has a wonderfully eloquent way of, of talking about the dangers for lawyers. Um, this pendulum that swings between apology and utopia. And Connor sets up very well how law has been used as an apology for state action. 
and he gives many examples, you know, um, in, in his book, so I, I don't want to spoil the plot. Um, and I'll, I'll skip over that just to basically caution and, and, and worry that Connor's conclusions, you have to read the book to find out what they are, I'll ask some pointed questions, Connor's conclusions potentially lead us the other way, so the pendulum swinging from apology to utopia. Is the answer for us to abolish the Security Council sanctions regime? Now, his other proposal is that we need to introduce democracy, the rule of law and human rights into the Security Council regime. And for reasons that I could go into in far too much boring detail, but you can think about it. The Security Council, you may know, 15 member states, five permanent members, it's set up as a power balance. It's driven by politics. It's the way we keep um, the balance. So there's very little law there. There's certainly very little democracy, and it's never going to be the case that democracy, the Security Council is going to be democratic. There's very little law. If we impose the rule of law and use this mighty banner of the rule of law, which sounds fantastic, in fact, what it means is the Security Council has to respect its own resolutions and the law in this stratospheric category of what we call use cogens. There's only a very, very high set of norms, like the prohibition of genocide, that the Security Council must comply with. So actually, to conclude and try and wrap up um, something I haven't quite started, my idea would be that, fine, lawyers shouldn't act as window dressers, as decorators. Nor, though, kind of should they act as demolition balls. But our role here is very much as architects. This is a new realm of international governance. The law, the framework, hasn't been constructed yet. And we need to be a bit more creative than drawing on domestic transplants like judicial intervention, and that's one, again, that it can be explored in so much more detail. Do courts have a role? Given the limited law that there exists um, in the Security Council context, I'd argue that things such as the interna in international ombudsperson should be given a little more time than you'll see um, Connor gives poor old Kimberly Prost, um, and that basically... Um, they have a role, and, and the international ombudsperson. Um, I'm trying to actually wrap this up in a way <laughs> with something neat. But the international ombudsman, who has greater access to information and influence the domestic courts, shouldn't just be dismissed as a co-conspirator in the devaluation of liberty at the expense of security, but rather that these things, instead of being in opposition with the help of us lawyers, um, can in fact um, cooperate. Thanks very much. Fantastic, Davika. Thank you so much. And the great thing about your devastating critique of one aspect of Connor's argument is that he doesn't get to answer back. Uh, although I imagine, I imagine he might try and weave some kind of response into one of your questions. Uh, so think about how he might get a chance to do that. <laughs> oh, she ran out of time, regrettably. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, that was coming in about 10 seconds, but to be got to stop. <laughs> Maybe you'll ask a question that will evoke that. Um, just before I open it up and ask our, uh, our tweeting guru to come up on the stage, I want to also put my quick comment and question to Connor from a very different angle of the book. 
Uh, and I did have a sneak preview of the kind of question, kind of comments Davika was going to make, so I deliberately chose a different strand. And this is what I want to say, and it's brief. Um, so what struck me about the book, above all, Connor, is the moral integrity of your voice in defense of universalism. It's a thread that runs throughout this thread of universalism. This is not a popular argument, and in that sense, it's a brave argument. So whilst we're, being, we're used to being told at the moment that speaking up for the many, not the few, all political parties are fighting over that tribute, aren't they? They're all saying, we speak now for the many, not the few. We're, be, we're told that's an ethical starting point, which may well be an arguable case when, for example, the few are millionaires who receive a tax cut and the many on low income uh, or no income and they receive a benefit cut, you challenge us to consider the few, not the many, when the freedom and security of the majority are protected at the price of greater insecurity and restricted liberty of an identifiable minority. And in most of the examples you, you give in the current era, it's a Muslim minority in the context of 9-11. Now, you also, at the same time, try to expand the concept of security to embrace the human rights concept of human security, which includes access to basic goods and needs to, to live a, a basic flourishing life, as, as the levelers once invited us to think about, and many, many theoreticians ever since. And you, but outside the context of anti-terror laws, you say very little, if I may say so, about the differential experiences of insecurity and the concomitant lack of liberty of particular groups, particular groups. For example, we all know that under the, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, black people are seven times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. That's not a universal experience. But more relevant for the question I'm about to put to you, every 10 days in England and Wales, a child is killed at the hands of their parents. And two women are killed at the hands of their partner or former partner every week. These are stunning, quite shocking statistics. And you can't live a flourishing life to quote the levellers, when you are frightened in your own home. Now, why this matters from the point of view of the book, before you start to give me the classic answer that you couldn't cover everything, is because my, your beef is not with laws and policies that limit security per se. In fact, Connor uh, makes it clear that they're essential, that you can't have absolute liberty, of course not. But your beef is with what you call neo-democratic policies and laws, providing a cloak of democratic values, as Davika said, whilst in fact aping free democratic Hobbesianism. Now, my question to you is this. Would you say the same about policies to protect those specific groups that I've mentioned, in particular in the domestic sphere? For example, injunctions for domestic, in relation to domestic violence. They use civil procedures. Civil procedures are used to get injunctions. There's no criminal burden of proof to get an injunction, but if you breach such an injunction, that can lead to imprisonment. Or internet restrictions to, against child pornography, which can lead to arrests for free speech offences. Free speech offences, which in another context in this book, Connor describes as neo-democratic measures. So my question for you, to you is, are these kinds of uh, measures neo-democratic, or are they necessary in a democratic society to protect one group of human beings against another? And if the latter, what distinguishes them from the examples you give in this book 
that is in the context of terror of neo-democratic measures, as you call them? That's my question. And that's the first question of this evening, and then we're going to open up to all of you. Well, I wish they were all Twitter, because then Francesca would only have had 140 characters. <laughs> I mean, that's why... You I, see why I hate it. That's why you? I want to shift this whole thing onto tweeting, you know, because, I mean... It's a conspiracy against I, 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 The first bit, 140 characters to start, which is all I'll answer, was how about how I try and do this and how I'm courageous and how it's a marvellous defence. And then she runs out of time, so I'm going to treat that as a Twitter intervention. No, I, I'll deal with... I'll deal with both. Actually, the two are linked. I will say something about the Vickers. Uh, uh, I am motivated by... Uh, the way we fool ourselves into believing we live in a free society. And a bit of this book is a sort of implicit homage to uh, Stan, you know, the late Stan Cohen, because uh, what really gets me is the way we all persuade ourselves we're free when we're not. And yes, it's mainly nowadays as Muslims, but it used to be Irish, you know. I mean, Paddy Hilliard wrote a very good book called Suspect Community in the 1980s, and it used to be sort of something which affected the Irish people like me in the 80s. And so I can... I have a memory of the different rules being applied to Irish people. Not me personally, because I was secure, but the Irish people... And that is something which I react against. Uh, I'll get to your key point through, De, through Devika, because it's quite right. I didn't really deal with the specific point. But let me, in getting to Francesca's point, deal with Devika's. Basically, in a, a little narrative, quite quick little narrative. When uh, special advocates were introduced into this country, there was a very interesting debate at Matrix Chambers where Francesca said earlier, I'm a member. Some barristers decided to become special advocates and some decided not to. Special advocates are people who, as the name, described, as the name suggests, get to only kind of half represent their clients. They don't get to meet their clients, but in return for that, they get some information. And it was a big moral judgment for the individuals concerned. Would they dress, as it were, the law in a way that would achieve some kind of amelioration of the situation of these people being detained without charge or the expectation of a charge? Or would they say, a plague on all your houses, we'll have nothing to do with it? And in a very serious way, that is something which really uh, has no obvious proper answer. Uh, if you do do it, you normalize a system which then spreads into other areas of law, which we've seen happen, where it becomes kind of routine in this, that, and the other areas to have special advocates who are able then not to represent the clients but appear to represent the clients. And we've seen with uh, the blacklist to which uh, Devika referred, which is a lot on the, in the book, we've seen it with Guantanamo and we've seen it with Belmarsh. What we've seen is extreme things which are gradually absorbed within the law and that absorption then protects them from repeal, and then they become normalized, and they become sort of what we do. And my anxiety about what Devika said is that by embracing it, we normalize it, and then the it becomes what we do. And the rule of law no longer stands for an independent judge. It stands for secret justice and the application of the state. It no longer uh, is determined, uh, it no longer inevitably involves an independent lawyer. It involves somebody who's a, a friend of the court, you know, and the Kafka thing in the trial, which I read for the festival thing. I couldn't believe how precisely he describes this in, Kafka, in the trial, how precisely he describes it. So I'm really worried about normalization. Guantanamo, which is supposed to be shut, there forever, etc. Now, what's the answer? Well, I, I do have a sort of answer to Devika, which then is an answer to Francesca. And they may or may not be contradictory, I'm not sure. I do not see the problem internationally, and there's a bit at the end of this book about it, with the old United Nations having a code of law enforcement which is international. So you agree conventions on specific mischiefs and then you have police cooperation in trying to uh, catch the people involved in things or try to come to agreement to prevent things. I have no objections to various conventions on hijacking aircraft or on this or that, but I do have objections about 
overarching terrorism laws. Uh, I have another 142 characters to go because it's not a Twitter answer. Uh, so that's my... I'd, I would get rid of Guantanamo. What I, would, I would have extradition. I would get rid of secret justice. I would have the rule of law. Now, Francesca's point. Uh, I do not reify a magical, nostalgic version of the criminal law rooted in the past. That is a potential in my argument, that you might think, there he is, he thinks there's this magic criminal law where everything was fine, and it's sort of some 19th century golden age of due process and everything. That, of course, is wrong. I have to be pragmatic about the development of frameworks of criminal law enforcement which acknowledge change, technological change, a change in our understanding of the nature of abuse, and which, therefore, are pragmatic about possibilities. I therefore, would say to Francesca that if we have a system which can change laws universally to deal with universal mischiefs to which everybody is, as it were, exposed if they commit these malpractices, and if it's done in a way which respects basic universal human rights, I'm not going to go to any, over any wall on the basis of a burden of proof. But it has to be done democratically, it has to be done universally, and it has to be done in a way which respects fundamental human rights. Uh, therefore, I'm not necessarily against, going back to De Vica's, expansion of the criminal law to cover new forms of political uh, violence, uh, just as I'm not against developing the criminal law in the way I've described. I am against the drift towards administrative executive detention and administrative decision-making, which impacts brutally on the lives of persons whose... Uh, who have been suspected of things by an administrator and never found guilty of things by a court. Okay, you can decide if you're satisfied with those answers. First, three <laughs> hands I, I see up. And Amy, will you please come on the stage and prepare to put some Twitter questions to Connor. First three hands. I'm going to look at geographically around the room and take the first three. One would be nice, actually. <laughs> And now going up. This is your moment. So shall we start with the... Ah, I, do I see somebody moving forward? Because that's a dangerous action, actually, in this situation. Well, if I don't have any questions yet from the... Ah, I've got one. Excellent. Anyone else before... Two, three. Okay, one... Let's do it geographically. One, two, three, and then we're going to go to the tweeted questions. Please say who you are. Uh, Matt Kavanagh. Um, I was in a former life a speechwriter to Gordon Brown and I enjoyed working on the speech that um, Connor showing so enjoyed. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to pick up on, on the, the quote and I'm afraid I haven't read the book um, typical of a political speechwriter not actually bother reading the book but the, the quote that, um, that uh, Dr. Hovell gave of, of um, you know, we are engaged in a, in a massive act of collective self-deception and, and I guess my question is you know, is that really true um, I, I agreed with the sort of historical account you gave, which is actually that, you know, broadly, the, 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 um, the British people have, have had a view of liberty and security which, which um, protects or, or believes that liberty should protect, protect it for the mainstream and, and remains fragile for, for people on the periphery. Uh, and if that's the case, I wonder whether people are really deceiving themselves or actually for most people they just have a different view of, of the two halves of this liberty and security and in particular they don't conceive of liberty as something you know, 
if, if, if essentially you see this as a messy balance, then you're not going to conceive of liberty as something which is either universalist or maximising, because those are the kind of things that can't be accommodated in that kind of evolving balance. Thank you. Very clear question. Great. Can everyone follow his example, please, Matt's example, and put clear, precise questions? That's super. There was someone in the middle there. We're doing it geographically. And these questions are to... Uh, it's a question panel. to Connor. Connor it's, my name's Peter Ramsey. I teach criminal law here at the London School of Economics. Um, it comes back to Francesca's point. The trouble is that the criminal law can be used we have an offence for preparation of terrorism. So it's an offence to, to intentionally prepare an act of terrorism. So you can prove in a court, and you can have a proper lawyer who represents you as a defendant and all the rest of it, um, and you can prove that somebody went to Lloyd's uh, in London and looked at it with a view to maybe doing something to it sometime in the future, and then give them, convict them of doing that uh, because they intended to do a terrorist act and put them into jail for a very long period. That meets all the formal criteria of criminal justice, but in effect, it's an administrative assessment that these people represent a serious risk. Uh, so the, the problem is that criminal offences are very, very flexible uh, in, in that respect. Uh, should we be against those kind of offences that spread or formal criminal justice so wide that it allows courts properly constituted with lawyers on both sides to make those kind of administrative uh, calculations? Thank you. And there was a third... Question. Yeah. Uh, I would like uh, Schlacke is my name. Uh, I have uh, been, uh, I don't know, 100 times at meetings uh, like this. You're welcome for the 101st time. <laughs> um, I would like to have a question about the framework of the whole discussion. That means uh, we talk about democ uh, democracy and neo-democracy, uh, which is a new term somehow, uh, which is uh, close to neoliberalism. Somehow I feel it's in, in the trend of the time. And uh, I would uh, like to also mention the extraordinary precision with which the economy is uh, developing, within which a discussion like that is possible because it has to be financed, a discussion like that. So without the economy is bringing about uh, uh, this possibility. Now this economy by now is uh, mathematized to a degree that when it comes to discussion what is actually uh, legal within the financial sector, which is, you know, an uh, important area, um, you better uh, get uh, PhD uh, um, uh, mathematicians uh, not just involved but running the discussion because the rest of society doesn't understand what actually is going on when you talk about flash crash, for instance. That means three so catastrophes. You know, I have to point that framework. Um, um, uh, three catastrophes which happened after Lehman. Everybody knows since Lehman we all changed. Uh, therefore, we talk now about neo-democrats. Uh, we wouldn't have uh, talked about neo-democrats, I'm quite sure, without uh, Lehman. Uh, so your question... Uh, now, the question I have uh, is uh, also the way uh, individual polling registers are possible by now uh, before actually votes take place. When we look, for, for instance, the way uh, the, uh, Obama was uh, elected the last time. Are they have a much larger influence 
on um, uh, the definition of neo-democracy uh, neo and what we should do about uh, to keep a good legal framework going, is that perhaps stronger uh, this mathematical development and the uh, technological development and the, the administrative uh, development of voter uh, 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 hustle, you know, to get the vote in, is that perhaps stronger than uh, we can uh, obtain from a debate about um, um, an ideal solution to the questions uh, which are raised in the book? Okay. Connor. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try and be brief. Thank you, Shaka. Uh, Matt, first, uh, I think it's linked a bit to Shaka was saying. Uh, my concern is that we have new varieties of marginal people, both in Britain and in Europe, and the historical account saw uh, left activists trade unionists and Irish nationalists, uh, suffragettes, as out with the liberty framework. Uh, and the margin of people of today who are not able to access the guarantees of liberty and security uh, include out of this jurisdiction the Roma, very obviously in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, but within this jurisdiction the travelling peoples, we remember that extraordinary event in Essex where the, uh, the expulsion of the travelling people from, uh, I think it was Basildon. Uh, where was it? Dale, Dale Farm. Dale Farm. Uh, obviously immigrants, asylum seekers. And that there is a sense, I don't know if it's a kind of covert racism, a sort of way in which we are saying without saying that our rules are not for everybody, even though we pretend that they are for everybody, uh, that the collective self-deception is uh, a desire to maintain an illusion of universality because we don't want to commit to the honesty of saying, actually, we don't want these people to have what we have. Uh, and somehow or other, we can't quite say that explicitly. Maybe that's a form of social progress. Uh, I'm not sure. On how to deal with that, and this is Shaka, I think. Uh, the book does, uh, and I'm repeating uh, Francesca's uh, point, I think, it understates the role of rethinking security, but we do need to rethink and put flesh on what is meant by security, uh, or we won't be able to change the implications of neoliberalism, the implications to which you refer, in any meaningful way, and we won't be able, therefore, to help create a society which is more equal, where we hope that there will be fewer of these marginal groups and a greater commitment to universality. Uh, to do that, we would need to address the legal framework of democracy, and there are sections in this book and in other books I've written about trying to, uh, trying to create true democratic uh, processes, and one of the arguments in this book is that one of the hangovers of uh, the past is that we never quite in this country and in many other places got to uh, a, a, an equal democratic playing field. And uh, that's a legacy of past inequality which has not been eradicated. It's lingered on into the democratic system. 
Uh, on Peter's point, Peter, the second speaker, uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Peter. We have offences like going prepared to commit acts of terrorism. I remember many of them coming through fax machines when I was helping the then opposition Labour Party in the 1980s with government taking opportunities to expand the laws, the terrorism laws. We had uh, arrest on reasonable suspicion of committing acts of terrorism. We have directing at any level the acts of a terrorist operation. Clearly, a decision was made to fight on that legal front as well as on the administrative front and use law in this way as kind of counter-ops. And uh, I ended up in the sort of unfortunate position of banking these changes when I next came to argue there was no need for further changes. So you always, a little bit like, i uh, deviate into something irrelevant, mm. a little bit like the Catholic Church is totally opposed to civil partnerships. Then when we suggest mm. marriage, they say, civil partnerships are fine, we all agree with civil <laughs> partnership. I was a bit like that. You know, I'm totally opposed to directing at any level the actions of a terrorist group. And then when something else comes along, I say, haven't you got directing? Haven't you got directing? What are you complaining about? There's no gap. Why, look, you filled the gap last year. And uh, that is, of course, an intellectual problem. But the, the answer, actually, I've come around to this very much, is the answer lies in what is the direction of travel of the law? How, wh what, is the, what is the judgment about where the law should be going? And I would like the law to be going in the opposite direction, and so if we shed some uh, of the administrative powers, we might find ourselves tackling some of these more egregious uh, pseudo-criminal provisions, uh, but all the time aware that uh, I don't want to reify the criminal law. And if a proper case is made for some offences of the type that with great particularity Francesca identified, and even if we go for a lesser burden of the proof, we agree that as a society. What I am wholly opposed to is using such a vague and extraordinary definition as we have of terrorism in the Terrorism Act 2000 as a way of, trans, of, of creating new offences and new administrative powers. So I'm, I'm in some ways pragmatic, but I see uh, the need for a push for a more liberal direction of travel, which is why I, I do argue for the repeal of all terrorism laws. I think we haven't had enough of, of that kind of outrider position. It's all been in the direction of more, more, more. I kind of was, well, it, uh, I sort of answered a bit by saying that you could certainly try and tackle the grotesque inequalities in the democratic system. And one of the hangovers of the fact that we have democracy without revolution has been that all power has carried forward into new situations. And so you have absurdities like the United States Supreme Court decisions on campaign funding and on cutting down uh, opportunities to represent Palestinian case uh, positions in America in that. So there is a, an angle about freeing up what, uh, the leveling the political playing field, which would be my answer to that. But it's not really, there's bits in this book, but it's mm -hmm. not so much in this book. Would you have to add anything? With, yeah. I'm indulging a little, so I'll be very quick, because I, I was really interested in sort of focusing on Peter Ramsey's question that, that kind of doesn't dispute. I mean, he says laws must be designed to prevent the sorts of destructive acts that threaten our security, and these offences should also embrace the planning and preparation of such violence, as well as the incitement of others to do them. Um, the Gull case was one that's you know, recent where a, a pre-Mary Law student um, was sentenced to five years in prison for putting on YouTube um, acts of the killing of Allied forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, from an international law perspective, that's problematic in the sense of they were defining that as terrorism. Um, but also it's interesting that, that you're not resisting that. What I see that you're resisting, and I, it, this is a question, is that movement from punitive 
on the part of the criminal law to prevent it, which is, is, is something that is happening and, and has happened. And, and my problem in the international sphere, excuse me, the only sphere I feel comfortable talking about, is of course in the sanctions context. Um, it's about due process in this case. So you say, and I am about to finish my point, um, that basically the key point though is, is the word crime. Um, it denotes the process through which all those suspected of such conduct are required to be put. Um, and this is where human rights and the rule of law come back in. Before we punish, we must be sure, and to be sure, we must be fair. Now, in the sanctions context, if you let someone know they're about to be put on a sanctions <coughs> list and tell them why, it's going to defeat the very object of the sanctions list. That was a question that Connor's not going to be allowed to answer just now. But I have to say, when Davika reads out from your book, and I can almost imagine it as the bed at be book at bedtime. She reads it so beautifully. She <laughs> makes it sound such a lovely, gentle type book. We're now going to get the... Yeah. <laughs> Amy's going to tell us the Twitter questions. Yeah, okay. So we have a question for Connor from Oliver Wilson, picking up on your McKinnon-Ahmed um, example in the extradition cases. Does the hypocrisy in the application of the law undermine the laws themselves? Um, another question directly for Connor from Martin Ironman. You avoid first principles. Where do you anchor claims about universality, duty, reason, sentimentality? Um, and one perhaps both of you could um, answer from Nina Norris. Given public support for limiting human rights of foreign criminals and terrorist suspects, how can neo-democracy be challenged? I've just been converted to Twitter. <laughs> Brilliant. What a fantastic round of questions. Okay, Connor, you yeah, I'll, the I'll, I'll, two, I'll, I'd like I'll, to answer the third. I'll Twitter reply, shall I, so it'll be quite short. Uh, one, uh, I wrote uh, one of my, my little essay in that Rights Future book, that I did, which is don't be too hard on hypocrisy. And uh, hypocrisy has a social value because, in a way, it least reveals the gap between theory and practice. And so we can work open a space by saying to people, oh, you believe in universality? Well, what about understanding it is applying to these people? What about understanding it is applying to these people? A kind of, uh, a kind of uh, expanding uh, circle of understanding of people as people. So we can... We can use hypocrisy to make social progress. So uh, I, I think hypocrisy only undermines law so long as it doesn't produce the removal of the law. Uh, we, we like to be able to point out hypocrisy as a way of putting people on the defensive. Uh, foundations, the second question. Well, there's not much about foundations in this little book. I do say I believe in universal liberty and security and I believe in it. I'm not going to tell you why. And uh, the sequel book number. Uh, well, actually, as it happens, there is an amazing new book, well, relatively new book, by a man called Philip Kircher called The Ethical Project, which never mentions human rights once, but is actually is a human rights history. And there is nothing in this book about any of this, but it's fundamental. And I did a lecture in this hall about... Uh, three years ago, which sort of was about evolution and species and fundamentalism and so on and so forth. So I'm still working on that. But I believe in foundations, and I don't think it's some imaginary uh, state of nature, and I don't think it's some clever brain by some white university professor, and I don't think it's an international convention. I think there's something beyond all of those 
which I think we need to reach. There's something in the first bit of my debating social rights about those kind of first principles. So it's not here, but it's somewhere. Uh, on terrorism, the third question, well, I'll just answer by saying I remember Stella Wimington, who was the head of MI5. She was giving the Dimbleby lecture on the BBC, and she said at the end of this lecture, or perhaps during it, I was listening up at home, she said, boasting about the success of MI5, we have 500 terrorists awaiting trial. And uh, she didn't say suspected, you know. And you would never say we have 500 murderers awaiting trial. You'd be, you'd be, you would be aware of the contradiction as you articulated it. So I am a great believer in the discipline in thinking that flows out of believing there is a difference between conduct and the description of that conduct as wrong. We see a very good example of it in the tragic case unfolding at the moment in South Africa, where we're all trying to hold in our minds the idea that that conduct needs to be established beyond reasonable doubt before we give it that label. And I think it's really an important thing, and it's what terrorism as a word doesn't do. It elides judgments by the state about your wrongdoing with the fact of your wrongdoing, and I think that's wrong. Uh, what we can do about neo-democracy, uh, I think we can use these uh, resources we have in the language of human rights, the universality of human rights, and in uh, the universality of the rule of law. I do think we need to address, uh, we need to address inequality, and that's where the language of economic and social rights has a really important role to play. Uh, I was at a lecture last night by Olivier de Schutter about, about, about the right to food. And I think one of the main ways to counter, to counter uh, neo-democracy is to counter rampant inequality. And to do that through a human rights model rooted in data and in international conventions is a way of, going back to the first answer, uh, using the hypocrisy of power against itself. Because power doesn't say, the current government here doesn't say, I'm rather pleased that we have more poor people. The current government pretends that it cares. And we use the language of human rights as a space with which to embarrass that government, hoping they won't say, well, we don't care, or believing that most people won't agree with that. Vic, would you like to respond on Lena's question, third one? Which I think was also addressing... <laughs> thank you. For, thank you. And I know that as a man who's gone to 101 events, that is praise indeed. Wasn't I'd like to speak this is real universality in action because kind of signifies quite too much I wouldn't get dinner after. <laughs> so I really, I think it was questions to Connor... Um, the third question is related to the issue of public support, China, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's like, no, yeah. I think I remembered it was, you know, if um, there's it's a lot unpopular. of public support yeah. mm, for, for, um, um, for, for limiting the human rights of foreign yeah, criminals yeah. and terror suspects. So. I mean, basically, Connor didn't answer the well, question. Well, okay. Let's be frank <laughs> about I mean, it. I mean, so I'm trying to do better than Connor did. Defending now liberty and security. Essentially, of course, democracy is not just about majority rule. And this is where I absolutely agree with Connor. Security, uh, that it's n democracy is not about just about majority rule. It's also about the protection of minorities. And so do you think popularity has no relevance in, in these judgments that we're discussing now? Completely it's got to irrelevant. be a compromise. No, 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 not at all completely irrelevant. But, um, and this is it. The thing, security, security is not completely irrelevant. This is what I'm trying to get at with my utopian idea. We've got to be pragmatic. There's no point in it being blind to security interests. 
and this special advocate. You know, these, these are lawyers being creative. This is the sausages being made. We're trying to devise a system that can respond to this problem of a clash between the need for transparency and confidentiality, and, and we're trying to find where that balance is, is achieved. We haven't got there yet. Any more questions from the... This is the last round, so I'm hoping to have one woman from the floor, because we haven't had one woman yet from the floor. Um, I'm still hoping while I... While I Mike's, oh, Mike's beard that, makes it difficult for oh, him. I found one <laughs> up there. Fantastic. In the gods, where we tend to go, don't we? Please start, and then we'll come down. Thank you. Um, my name is Kavita Kopas, just an interested observer. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about um, liberty and security in relation um, to the state. Um, what I'm interested would be to hear what your th thoughts are in terms of um, the, the power of private individuals and um, organisations now to make decisions about the liberty and security of a nation state. So what, what's the role going to be in the future? And, um, and also, where does that position um, the trust that individuals have in terms of do they trust the, the private organisations more than the state and what does that mean for the security of the state overall? Okay. Sorry, I, I think we're going to have uh, take the two down here, yourself and yourself, and I might come up there. If, if you are very, very disciplined, his freedom of speech is reliant on you too. Okay, um, Mike Cushman, uh, Connor's trade union branch secretary. Um, <laughs> and mine, please. And Francesca. I'm not sure about Devika, so I wasn't going across the whole... I haven't checked my membership list. I suppose, you know, I position myself in some ways with Connor, which is at the margin of the safe and comfortable, peering over the edge of those people who are not free and are marginalised. And looking at this process of outsiders, this process of othering, where we create those people outside ourselves by what we could call a soft apartheid, but these states of denial require constant construction and reconstruction. They don't just exist. And they're reconstructed to a considerable degree through security theatre, through the creation of acts by the government like not being able to take water bottles onto aeroplanes, having the increasing security on entry to all events which are not pragmatically always justified. And maybe one of the ways through is not through a challenge on law per se, but a challenge on these ever-increasing routines which are always politically easy to introduce and politically very difficult ever to reverse because if anything were to go wrong, the price would be so high. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm Julian Siebert. I'm a master's student in one of Connor's courses. Um, my question is, um, don't you think that in our neo-democratic security society, uh, in its pursuit to secure the liberty of the majority, um, it will impose uh, measures which are more and more indiscriminate and eventually will take away also the liberty of those mainstream uh, society members which it aims to secure? Thank you. And there was one more up here, but if you put it very... Um, thanks, yeah. I'm Hussein Arslan. I'm a Master of Science Human Rights student. Um, yeah, you mentioned of Guantanamo. Um, just wondering whether you could uh, deal with the uh, 
immigration detention centers in the United Kingdom, there are uh, some immigration detention centers such as Dover, Campsfield, Columbrook, and Harmonsworth. As you are aware, some asylum seekers Please are just put your question. some asylum seekers have been detained there even more than six months, and some of them obviously are about to be removed. Some of them are to be deported. So, I mean, don't you think that there is a deprivation of liberty in terms of this detention, Thank especially you. for asylum seekers? Okay, Thanks. that's great. And we're going to finish with one more tweeted question to show how my conversion is complete. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a question from Owen Allen. John, is there anything to be said for conceiving of security as a right, or do we need to move beyond the rights language? Good question. They are best question. Okay, I think, should we let him have the last word? Yeah, in name of our dinner. Okay, Connor, you've got the floor. Oh, does the speaker not want to say anything? No. Is this the last word? Mm-hmm. Uh... I'll be short, I think. Uh, well, I don't know. I didn't pick up yeah, all, the, all the names. Uh, Kavita, uh, yeah, private power. Let's address it in this tiny little short way. Uh, liberty often say people freedom from state interference or freedom to stuff. And usually, you know, the freedom from people have already got nice lives and they want to protect themselves from state intrusion. It's the people who, who, who have to rely on the state to achieve a better life, freedom to stuff, that need the state, the state to protect them from the, uh, the private sector. And uh, a nice little example of that from the Human Rights Act was, of course, the YL case, where people were being basically tortured uh, in care homes, as it turned out, by Southern Cross, and yet the courts held that human rights did not apply to the private provider because they were a private body. So one of the crucial things to do is to try and extend the language of human rights to the private providers, but is also to remind ourselves of the vital role of the state in countering private abuse. So take your point, but the state has, a, in the parlance of the human rights, a kind of positive obligation to engage to protect the rights of vulnerable individuals from uh, rapacious private buccaneers. Uh, I'm not sure about Mike's point, to be honest with you. I read, I heard you, Mike, and this may be wrong, and you are, as it were, my boss. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought there was a slight little hint of libertarianism in what you said uh, about the big brother or big sibling, as I think we should call it in our politically <laughs> finely tuned times. Uh, and I'm not so sure that I am as anxious about some of what you describe, as I am about the possibility mentioned by Julian of how these initial impacts on human rights, which are aimed at the few, gradually spread to the many. Part of what we need to do to persuade is to show people how that might be possible. It's not very plausible to argue it with regard to, for example, detention on suspicion of terrorism. People won't believe you. But what has had some traction recently has been trying to persuade people, and Francesca and others have been involved in this, trying to persuade people that there is uh, a relevance in the Human Rights Act for all of us, in that the Human Rights Act can protect people who are being treated very badly in care homes, go back to the YL example, or who are unable to access basic provisions. So I think one of the answers lies in trying to persuade people that what you said is true, but trying to persuade people in a plausible way that it is true. Uh, on immigration detention centres, very good example. 
deprivation of liberty as one of my students, though not acknowledging yourself as such this afternoon, this evening, <laughs> unlike Julian, uh, you have practically but implicitly denied me. But, uh, and of course I am aware, as I always am, of your student number because of the big brother to which Mike referred earlier. Uh, deprivation of liberty is a term of art in law and what do you do when the courts come along and say it's all fine? And there have been cases where there's been efforts to disrupt the uh, ter terrible uh, liberty denial that you're describing and it's been upheld as broadly compatible with the law. And what do you do then? Same as the Kettling point made earlier. What do you do when the courts tell you that what's going on is not a deprivation of liberty? So we have to address the issue as not only a legal, but also a political one, which takes me, uh, before my plug for a forthcoming event, to the right to security. Uh, and I like the idea of uh, security as a platform for successful life and therefore as something which provides us with that degree of social security to enable us to plan a life in order to endure, in, in, enjoy our freedom. I am not au fait in this. I need to work this subject up because I don't fully grasp how good the learning on it is. I am therefore keener to identify what it is that is necessary to lead a good life and they will then be conceptualized as economic and social rights and then work to create conditions where those economic and social rights are available to the many, not the few. My plug, my plug related to that is uh, for the uh, prosecution of austerity for breach of international human rights law, which we are doing here at LSE with Just Fair, the NGO, and supported by Matrix Chambers. I'm not allowed to say supported, apparently, because in the post- Libya world, there are all sorts of implications about <laughs> suggesting that matrix are gaining from this. Uh, but we are actually putting austerity on trial. We have a prosecution team that are prosecuting and we have a defense team that are defending and we have expert witnesses like Magdalene de Sepulveda from the United Nations and Will Hutton and Polly Toynbee on one side and Tim Frost and others on the other. So I hope you can come along 1st of March and watch an attempt to make international human rights law bite in our culture. I think we've had enough plugs for tonight, which is why I won't mention that when we finish in a minute, Connor will be doing a book signing up here, and I actually think that if you get him to sign your book, it'll be worth a whole lot more, and then in a couple of years, when you've answered all your exam questions, you can try and sell it on eBay <laughs> for a higher price. Brilliant answer to those questions. Brilliant author, brilliant responder, brilliant Twitter guru. Let's give them... Thank you very much.